It's good to be here this morning. Well, the title of this morning's message is Radical Discipleship. And what I'm going to share this morning, if you've been around the church world for a while, and I, I know some of you guys, you, you're, you're church veterans, some of the stuff I'm going to share this morning, there's actually nothing really radical about it. It's just I think that what has happened is, is we've moved so far away from the New Testament definition of what a Christian is that a New Testament Christian seems radical. There was a famous book, yeah, I got a big round of applause right here. There was a famous book that came out in the 20th century by a Chinese pastor named Watchman Nee, and it was called The Normal Christian Life. And if we read it nowadays as 21st century Christians, that's radical. He was just outlining what a New Testament Christian looks like. But I think that we've kind of lost a picture a little bit of what a New Testament Christian looks like. And I'm going to share about seven spiritual disciplines in this message this morning that are essential for Jesus' followers. And there's different names for these. They're called spiritual disciplines. They're called practices of spiritual formation. They're called spiritual habits, spiritual exercises, gospel rhythms. They're, ba- they're just different names for basically the same thing. And I like calling them disciplines because you do them whether you feel like it or not. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. Even though I'm a pastor, I don't always want to read my Bible. Even though I'm a pastor, I don't always want to pray And sometimes what you do is is you do it regardless of how you feel. And a discipline is something that you do that's good for you, whether you feel like it or not. And what I found with these spiritual disciplines is that when I don't practice them, I feel weaker. That these spiritual disciplines I'm going to talk about this morning, they're like training wheels. They're like buttresses. That when I do them, I feel stronger. And that's what a discipline is. A discipline is something that you do that's good for you, whether you feel like it or not. I'll tell you kind of an odd thing about myself. I hate brushing my teeth. And I don't know why that is. I just hate brushing. I mean, don't worry. I brush my teeth. Amen? Can I get a amen? But I don't like doing it for whatever reason. So I have to like trick myself. Literally, I have to like listen to podcasts, watch Netflix, reward myself. I have to do all kinds of strange things. But I do it because it's good for me and it's something I do whether I feel like it or not. And I want to tell you something is that one of the, one of the essential keys to success in life is self-discipline. If you want to succeed in life at anything, you have to have self-discipline. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32 says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. You know, they say about Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great was a fascinating person. He had conquered the entire known world by his early 30s. But what they say about Alexander the Great is that Alexander could conquer the world, but he couldn't conquer Alexander. And he ended up dying in a pool of his own vomit when he was 32 years old. Teddy Roosevelt said that with with self-discipline, almost anything is possible, and his life was a model of that. Teddy Roosevelt was the youngest president ever. He became the president of the United States when he was 42 years old. Now, if you're in your 20s, that seems old. That's a baby for those of us who are older, amen? And he used to read three books a day. His life was a model of that. Maxwell Maltz, he was a famous surgeon in the 20th century. He said, the ability to discipline yourself, to delay gratification in the short term, in order to enjoy greater rewards in the long term, is the indispensable prerequisite for success. And then you always got to throw a Plato quote into a message, amen? The first and greatest victory is to conquer self. 
if we want to succeed in life, we have to have self-discipline. And the Holy Spirit will help us. It's not like I'm telling you to dig deeper and work harder. The Spirit of God will actually give you the ability to have self-discipline if you open yourself to Him. Paul says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of what? Self-control. Paul says, if you, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And I think oftentimes as Christians, we're, we're so focused on not doing the wrong thing, whereas if you would focus on Jesus, walk in the Spirit, delight yourself in the Lord, be filled with God, your life would begin to bear the fruits of the Spirit, and you would have more patience, you'd have more discipline, you would have more love and grace. I, trust me, you can tell the difference when I've spent time with Jesus and when I haven't, Amen. If I spend time with Jesus, I'm much kinder, much more loving, much more gracious than when I don't. So I'm not telling you to dig deeper and work harder. All I'm saying is the Spirit of God will help you with these things. You know, during the quarantine in New York City, we had a hardcore quarantine. I mean, you could walk through midtown Manhattan. It was like the movie I Am Legend. You wouldn't see a soul. I've got photographs of Times Square during the height of the quarantine, and there's literally not a single person. It's just tumbleweeds rolling by. There's nobody. So I'm like trapped in my apartment and I'm losing my mind and then I start, you know, reading all this research about if you walk 10,000 steps a day, you can, you can actually, you can extend your life by 20 years. I was like, oh my gosh. So I started walking 10,000 steps a day during the quarantine and then I scaled up and I got a bike and now every day I ride my bike 10 and a half miles every day. I've started lifting weights. I drink a protein shake. I take vitamin C. I've become a health nut in my middle age. Amen. <laughs> But here's the thing is, I do that whether I feel like it or not. There's some mornings I want to ride 10 and a half miles, and some mornings I don't want to ride 10 and a half miles, but I make myself do it regardless of how I feel because it's a discipline. And if I will do that every day, I sleep better, I have more stamina, and I'm going to live longer, amen? And it's such a simple thing to do, but that's what a discipline is. It's something you do whether you like it or not. And so just like I have my spiritual exercise, just like I have my physical exercises, I have my spiritual exercises. I have the things that I do every day spiritually that help me be strong in my faith. And I want to I share something with you. You have to approach your spirituality in the same way. I'm gonna, in, in a moment, I'm going to talk about there's six areas of life that you want to be healthy in. And one of the areas you want to be healthy in is you want to be spiritually healthy. But you need to look at your spirituality like that. You need to see it as an investment. You need to invest in your spirituality. And you need to see it as an area of your life that you need to be healthy in. And I would argue that being spiritually healthy will affect every other area of your life. I think there are certain types of anxiety and heart disease and cancer and things like that that can actually be traced to probably a lack of spiritual health in our lives. I believe if you're spiritually healthy, it will bear fruit in every other area of your life. But we want to be mentally healthy, emotionally healthy, physically healthy, relationally healthy, financially healthy, and spiritually healthy. And Sunday can't be the only spiritual nourishment we, we get all week. If, the, if I only ate once a week physically, I would not be a very pleasant person to be around, amen? I would be perpetually hangry. And yet I think for a lot of Christians, this is the only spiritual nourishment they get all week. If we want to be spiritually healthy, we need to feed ourselves every day. We need to invest in ourselves every day. The Harvard Business Review, they have these great little books. And if you're in business or you're interested in kind of developing yourself, there are these great little booklets you can get. And there's one by Peter Drucker. I think it's the best of them. 
And the title of this little booklet is Managing Yourself. And Peter Drucker has this great line in it. He says, history's great achievers, a Napoleon, a Da Vinci, a Mozart, have always managed themselves. That, in large measure, is what makes them great. If you want to succeed in life, you have to manage yourself. And we have to manage ourselves spiritually. You know, as a pastor, the first person that I have to pastor is me. Paul says that the hardworking farmer must be the first to partake of the crops. And before I can go to my church and minister to other people, I have to minister to myself. I'll tell you what was a total game changer for me as a pastor was I used to not do a Sunday morning. I used to not do like a, like a personal devotion on Sunday mornings, and I don't know why I didn't do that. But I thought that because I'm going over my notes and I'm going to church that I didn't need to do that. But about three years ago, I started getting up about 4 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and I'll spend a couple hours with Jesus before I go to church. It completely changed my church. Because now I go to church, I'm, sp- I'm prayed up, I'm filled with God's Spirit, and I'm ready for everything that a Sunday has for me. And I can tell you, church planning in New York City, it's like being on the front lines in Afghanistan or something, amen? <laughs> it is intense spiritual warfare. I can't tell you the stuff I've arrived to on a Sunday morning. You know, we always rent these venues, and usually they're like club venues, and there's vomit everywhere. I, can't, I don't even want to tell you the stuff I've, I've approached on a Sunday morning. But if I'm not spiritually ready, then I'm going to get steamrolled by the enemy. So I started having a Sunday morning devotional. It totally changed my experience. And I'll tell you what being a pastor is. I'll tell you what ministry is. Here's what ministry is. Nathan, if you're listening, no. <laughs> is you fill yourself up and you pour yourself out. You fill yourself up and you pour yourself out. But I can't pour out if I haven't invested in myself spiritually. And I think as Christians, even if you're not a pastor, you still have to pastor yourself. You have to learn to feed yourself. You know, we do church, and the, here's, I see church as like a family meal, and we work really hard to, to take care of you guys, feed you, give you something good. But if, again, if you only ate one meal a week, you're not going to be a healthy person. So you have, to, you have to learn to pasture yourself and feed yourself on a daily basis. You know, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, uh, when the Israelites are going through the wilderness, God provided manna for them. And the word manna literally just means, what is it, which I think is great. <laughs> and manna was this strange, like, kind of angel food, and they would go out in the morning, and it would be spread along, you know, the, the floor of the desert. And they would make bread with it, and they would eat it, they'd do all the stuff with it, and it sustained them through the wilderness. But what's interesting about the manna was that the manna, it was only good for 24 hours. If you took the manna and tried to put it in a jar the next day, it'd be full of maggots. Because what God was teaching the Israelites is that, and he's teaching us is that we can't live off of yesterday's grace. Amen? I can't live off of what I heard last Sunday or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I need that fresh manna every day. And what is the manna a type of? It's, this, it's the answer to every Sunday school question. Jesus. We need the bread of life. I need Jesus every day. I need that fresh manna every day. I can't live off of yesterday's grace. And so that's why spiritual disciplines are important. You know, it's interesting is in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, pray like this. He says, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Well, how often are we supposed to pray that prayer? Daily. Jesus is tricking us, amen? <laughs> He's giving us a prayer that we have to pray it every day. That I can't, every day, Lord, I need the bread to get me through today. And this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What's interesting, too, is to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a committed, 
disciplined follower of Christ. And I want to share something with you, and you're probably going to disagree with me for a moment, but just let me make my case, amen? Is I don't actually think the call of Jesus is to be a Christian. Now, see, you're disagreeing with me, all right? But just listen, let me make my case. And I think this is important because I think the term Christian is actually too vague. I, I think it's, it doesn't really mean anything anymore. You can define something so broadly that it loses its definition. And what's fascinating about the New Testament is that the word disciple is used 269 times, but the word Christian is only used three times. And Jesus actually never used the word Christian. There you go. That, that was worth coming this morning, right? He never actually even used the word Christian. And so what is the call of Jesus? What is Jesus looking for? I think that Jesus is looking for disciples. He's looking for committed, disciplined followers of him. Not perfect people, but just committed people. And we see this in the Great Commission. Look at the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And I should have the verses behind me. Or maybe not. So um, <laughs> you just see my bald spot. <laughs> It says, all authority, look, look at what Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. He doesn't say go therefore and make Christians, and he could have used that term. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The Greek word that Jesus uses here is the word disciples, and to, a more literal definition would be an apprentice. And it goes back to an apprenticeship culture. It goes back to an agrarian culture. Jesus was actually a carpenter, and really the literal word is technon. It's where we get our word technology from or architect from. Jesus was really a builder. He was probably a stonemason. He was a carpenter, which I think is a perfect picture of Jesus, because what does Jesus do? He takes the raw materials of our lives, and he builds us into something beautiful. Amen. And so really what a disciple is, it's an apprentice. And the idea is that Jesus is our master, and we're learning from Jesus what it means to be the people that God wants us to be. That we're modeling our lives after him. We're looking at him, we're analyzing him, we're studying him, we're saying, I want to be just like Jesus. That's what a disciple is. And here's the thing, is that Jesus was perfect humanity. And so the best version of you is the Jesus version of you. Amen? Dallas Willard, he has this great quote. He said, Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. You want to know what discipleship is? Discipleship is what would your life look like if Jesus was living your life? If Jesus was married to the person you're married to, amen? If Jesus had the job that you had, if he lived in the neighborhood you lived in, what would your life look like if Jesus were living your life? What would my life look like if Jesus was living Mike Doyle's life? What kind of pastor would I be? How would I treat my neighbors? How would I conduct myself in New York City if Jesus was living my life? That's what it means to be a disciple. But notice also what Jesus says. It says we're to make disciples. And the thing about discipleship, it's, it's a lifelong process. It's, it's the old timers used to call it progressive sanctification. It's this lifelong journey of becoming more and more like Jesus. And I'm more like Jesus now at this stage of my life than I was 20 years ago, and I'm hoping that I'll be more like Jesus 20 years in the future than I am now. Alan Redpath, he was a revivalist, and he wrote a really outstanding book called Why Revival Tarries, and if you're fascinated by revival, I'd pick up that book and read it. It's like a good spanking from Mr. Allen, right? 
But he says, it takes but a moment to make a convert. It takes a lifetime to manufacture a saint. But discipleship produces the kind of fruit that Jesus wants. Because what's the fruit that Jesus wants? You know what he wants? He wants long-term fruit, sustainable fruit, fruit that remains. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus, you know what Jesus was really doing in the Gospels, what he was really doing in his ministry was, yeah, he, he preached and he worked miracles and he did all those things, but really what Jesus was doing in that span of three years was he picked 12 men, and out of the 12, he had the three, Peter, James, and John, and out of three, he had the one, he had Peter, and he picked 12 men, and for three years, he, inv- he poured himself into those 12 men, and he modeled to those men what they were to do after he was gone. And that's exactly what happened. So Jesus dies on the cross, raises from the dead, and ascends into heaven. And those 12 men would go on and change the entire course of human history. It's what Jesus did. Jesus' strategy to change the world is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples until Jesus comes back. That's his big plan to take over the world. And every, dis- every Christian is a disciple maker. And all that discipleship is, is discipleship... It's helping, one Christ, it's helping one person follow Jesus a little bit better. At my church, I try to foster an atmosphere where it's almost like a learning environment. I learn from the people that I'm discipling. They learn from me, and we build one another up in love, and we encourage one another and help one another. But every Christian is to be a disciple maker. And here's the thing to think about, too, is we're all making disciples. What kind of disciples are we making? And so every Christian is a disciple maker, and we disciple people until Jesus comes back. Now, there's seven essential disciplines of a Jesus follower. And as I kind of slowly begin to land this plane and wrap this message up, I want to go through these pretty quickly. If you're a note taker, I encourage you to write these down. And I'm going to read them to you first, and we're going to take a minute and unpack each of them. Praying, setting aside time every day for prayer, communing, being in true community with other believers, reading, taking time daily to read through the Bible, giving, giving to the Lord of your time, treasure, and talents, serving, finding a place to help, and jumping in, sharing, always looking for opportunities to share Jesus and the gospel with others, and worshiping, worshiping God through singing, prayer, and reflection. And I'm going to take a moment. I'm, we're going to go through these really quickly, but even before I unpack these, there's something I want to share is that these seven things that I'm going to outline, they're not rules, and they're not laws. They're just guides. I see these seven spiritual disciplines as like a roadmap to the Christian life. Because I think oftentimes as Christians, we, just, we don't even know what to do as Christians. Like, what does a Christian life look like? And really, I designed this message because I pastor a very young church in Manhattan. It's all full of 20-somethings and 30-somethings. And what I find is that so many, especially younger Christians, so many of the younger Christians today, they don't even know what it means to be a Christian. They don't even know, what, how do I follow Jesus? And so I found that sometimes I'm preaching kind of over their heads, and they don't even know the basics. And then for those of us who've been around for a good time, it's always good to be reminded of the basics. Amen? And here's the thing is that Christianity is Jesus. Even as I share these seven disciplines, I'm not trying to put a burden on you because, you know what, there is no burden. Christianity is Jesus. That's all that it is. It's worshiping Jesus, following Jesus, serving Jesus. He is our law. He's our Torah. And, and what these are is they're just spiritual guidelines to help us. They're a roadmap. But let's take a moment and walk through each of them. The first one is prayer. The first essential spiritual discipline of a Jesus follower is prayer. And I want to tell you something, and, and I've, long, I've been a Christian for about 28 years, and I've 
absolutely become convinced of this, is the most important thing you can do in life is pray. It's absolutely prayer. I think that prayer is to the Christian what breathing is to the body. I think the entire fount of the Christian life is prayer. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a famous mid-20th century preacher. He has this quote, and I totally agree with him. He says, prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. And if you look at Jesus, this was true of Jesus. Prayer was the center of Jesus' life. And I always think about this. I think, if the Son of God needed to pray, how much more do I need to pray? Before every major decision, what did Jesus do? He would go off, he'd find a lonely place, and he'd pray. He'd be up all night casting out demons, healing the sick, working miracles, and yet he would still get up about four in the morning before the sun would rise. He'd go off, he'd find a lonely place, and he would pray. Jesus says, I only do that which I see the Father doing. Well, how did Jesus know what he needed to do? He found that in prayer, as he spent time in prayer. I, I, can't, I can't overemphasize it enough is that I think that the most important thing that we can do as Christians is pray. I've actually found it to be that the best cure for temptation, now everyone's like looking at, <laughs> they're off Instagram, they're like, what? I, I think the best cure for temptation, listen to this, is a robust prayer life. If I spend time with Jesus in prayer, especially if I spend time with Jesus in prayer in the morning, I'm so much stronger throughout the day. When I pray, I make better decisions. When I pray, I have more peace. When I pray, I hear the voice of God. I've gotten to a point now where I don't want to make any decision whatsoever until I've prayed about it. Amen? There's kind of a principle that's become kind of trendy, but I think it's good. It's, it's pray first. Before you do anything, pray. Before you send off that email, before you make that business decision, before you make that investment, before you ask that girl out, amen, before you do anything, pray. Pray first. Prayer is so important to the Christian life. And what I would encourage you to do, I would encourage you to write out a prayer list. Because what I found is if I don't have a prayer list, I'll pray for like a minute. I'm like, well, what else is there to pray about, you know? But if I have a prayer list, I, can, I try to pray for 30 minutes every day. And I used to have a physical prayer list, uh, but now I have a mental one that I go through, and it kind of guides me during my prayer time. You're thinking, Michael, what do I pray about? Well, I'll tell you what to pray about. Mike Doyle, amen? Movement Church, New York City. A million dollars for Movement Church, New York City. No, I mean, I, just begin to write it out. Pray for your family. Pray for your, your unsaved neighbors. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for revival. Pray for your city. But I encourage you to have a prayer list. And if, you, if you've never done this before or you're not a real strong prayer, start with just 10 things. Just write out 10 things and start praying over those 10 things every day. And then once you kind of got that down, expand it to 15, then expand it to 20, and then just go crazy with it. Now I have a half hour of things that I pray through, and that guides me as I pray. And what's prayer? You know what prayer is? Prayer is just talking to Jesus. That's all that it is. It's just talking to Jesus. It's confessing our sins to Jesus. It's giving our burdens to him. It's giving our concerns to him. And what I found, too, is the, the older I get is I just get more and more explicit with Jesus. I just tell him everything I'm thinking and everything I'm feeling because he already knows anyways. Amen? I'm not shocking him. It's not like, whoa, I didn't know that. <laughs> That's why Jesus says when you pray, you don't need to pray repetitive words. He says because your father already knows what you need before you ask him. 
When we're praying, we're not informing God. It's not like, whoa, I'm so glad you told me all that, Mike. I wasn't aware of any of those things. No, I'm not informing God. You say, well, Mike, then what's the point of prayer? It's not so much about me informing God. It's about me connecting with God. I need God. And God wants to hear from me, and he wants to talk to me. He wants to give me power and resources and wisdom. But he's such a gentleman that he won't force himself on us. He's got everything we need, but you've got to go to him and ask him for it. James says, you have not because you ask not. And so it's not about, you know, it's not about God. It's about me and going to him to get those things that I need. The second spiritual discipline is communing, being in true community with other believers. And community, Christian community is absolutely vital to the Christian life. I think the times in my, my Christian life where I probably struggled the most were the times when I wasn't as deeply planted in Christian community as I should have been. And I actually look back on those periods, and that, those are the periods that I regret. I wasn't as healthy as I should have been because I wasn't planted in Christian community. And I would challenge you guys, you know, to find a local church and to commit to it. And here's the thing is there's no perfect church, amen? The only perfect church is in heaven. And if you found the perfect church, don't go to it. I'm going to grab my water because the moment you go to it, it's not perfect anymore, Amen. Because you're there now with all your stuff. There's no perfect church. You just got to find a church and commit to it. And I would really encourage you to, to support Nathan Pooley in this church. He needs your help. He needs your support. One thing about you guys live in the Bible Belt, and there's like 10 million churches down here. And there's this church planting boom, and there's every, I've never seen so many churches in Pensacola. And that's good, but just pick one of the 10,000. <laughs> And just commit to it. And commit to your pastor and support him. And pastors are human beings too, and they need your help and they need your support. I get so much strength from my core team at my church. I couldn't do it without them. If I didn't have them, I wouldn't have lasted. I need them. Your pastor needs you and you need him, and there's a kind of synergy there that comes from commitment. Third is reading. Taking time daily to read through the Bible. There, there's this book, it's called The Bible. It's this crazy book, right? 66 books written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period of time in three different languages, and yet it has one theme, and what's that theme? Jesus. This is a supernatural book. Look, I'm a charismatic. I believe in the gifts and power of the Holy Spirit, amen? amen. People say, well, I want to encounter with the Holy Spirit. Well, you know what? He wrote a book, Amen. <laughs> You want to encounter the Holy Spirit? Read the book that he wrote. This is a supernatural book. It's a weird book, man. I get stuff. I mean, God speaks to me out of Second Chronicles and Leviticus and strange places. I flew down from New York last night, and I'm going through the book of Job, and Job is blowing my mind. I, I haven't read Job in 20 years. It's a supernatural book. And there's something about reading the Bible. Even just the sheer act of reading the Bible does something for you, and I don't even understand it necessarily. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to challenge you to read at least one chapter of the Bible a day. Can you do that? And, and what you can do is if it's 1130 and you're going to bed in five minutes, you're like, dang, I didn't do my one chapter, just read a psalm, amen? Read Psalm 1. Just read anything. And when you read the Bible, what I like to do is it's called active reading. I read it with a highlighter. I read it, I read it with a pen. Spurgeon said a Bible that's, a person who has a Bible that's falling apart symbolizes a life that's not falling apart, you know? And, and when you read your Bible, underline things, circle things. And here's the other thing about the Bible is 
after you've read it, do it. You're never going to experience the power of the Word of God until you begin to obey the Word of God. That's when the Bible comes alive. That's when you'll experience its power. When I do what the Bible says is when I experience the power of the Word of God. Giving. Everyone's favorite topic. Amen? And we give to the Lord of our time and treasure and our talents. And we also want to give to the Lord financially. And there's a lot of debate today about the tithe and is the tithe in the New Testament and all that. I don't, I don't want to wade into that debate. But here's what I want to tell you is I think that a good baseline for giving is the tithe. And, what, and the word tithe, it's, it's a word that literally just means a tenth. And so you think, Mike, is the tithe in the New Testament? I don't want to get into that, but if, but if I was going to give you like a good baseline for giving, I think the tithe is a good baseline. And I think that we're to give to the Lord 10% of our gross income. You say, Mike, well, why our gross income? <laughs> couple reasons. First of all, in the Bible, we're to give to God of our first fruits. We give to God our first and our best. And so I tithe off my gross income. So you know what I do? I give to the Lord first, then I give to the state of New York and the federal government and my IRA and my retirements and my savings and everything else. But I give to God first. And then I tell people sometimes, I have these young finance guys, these young rich guys, and they say, Mike, should I tithe off my net or my gross? I say, well, what do you want? Do you want the net blessing of God or the gross blessing of God? Amen? And then they go, well, I want the gross blessing of God. We'll give to God off your gross. But here's the thing, too, is that there's only one area in the Bible where you're ever allowed to test God. It's in the area of giving. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, it says, Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And I can say from my own personal experience, I have absolutely seen this in my own life, that once I began to tithe and I tithe off my gross, God began to bless my finances incredibly in ways that like defy explanation. Once I began to obey God in the area of giving, it changed my entire financial picture. And you cannot outgive God. Amen? There's a story about, you say, Mike, well, wow, 10%, that's, that's kind of tough. You ever heard the story of the Quaker Oats guy? He did reverse tithing. He kept 10% and tithed 90%. And he still ended up being a billionaire. Amen? You're like, that's crazy. I know that's crazy, but just something to think about is... And I also think that your tithe goes to your local church. So I tithe to the church that I pastor. And then what I do is I give, a, I give above and beyond my tithe to other things. And I love being a, a secret generous giver. There's a ministry couple that I love a lot. I just always Venmo them, you know, a couple hundred dollars and just say, hey, take your wife out for dinner. I, I, I give homeless people like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose all my rewards for this, but I'm just going to tell you, I give homeless people like $100 bills. I just, and I do that all the time. I have my baseline tithe, and then I give above and beyond that to all kinds of other things. And I, what I have found is that I cannot outgive God. And we also give to the Lord of our time and our talents. If you're good at something, you give back to the Lord with it. If you're good at music, join the worship team. Amen? If you're good with finances, help out the finance team. If you're good with law, protect us from lawsuits. Whatever you're good at, you serve God with that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with these, these last few ones. Serving, finding a place to help, and jumping in. 
I think there's three stages in the Christian life. The first is you surrender your life to Jesus. Then secondly, you find a good church, you commit to it, and you plug in. And then the third step is you begin to serve. And I honestly believe that when you begin to serve God, that unlocks the Christian life. And the reason why is because, and this is what I've experienced, is that as you serve Jesus, you encounter Jesus. That's why, honestly, that's why I'm a pastor. That's why I've given my life vocationally to serving Jesus, because I meet Jesus as I serve him. With my own church, I'm the first to get there and the last to leave. That's a principle that I have. And I love, after everybody's gone, we've had a great Sunday, I've taken care of everybody, we've fed them, we've worshipped them, we've washed them, we set them out happy, and I'm kind of picking up the last pieces and turning off the lights and turning off the AC. You know what I feel as a pastor? Jesus. I feel his presence, I feel his smile, I feel his pleasure, and it's like addictive. As you serve Jesus, you meet Jesus, you encounter Jesus. And why is that? Because Jesus was a servant. Look at these verses. He says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Do you ever notice about Jesus that he didn't have a VIP room? Amen. Because <laughs> he was too busy out serving other people. Jesus says, he says, I am among you as one who serves. Mark 9, 35. Anyone who wants to be the first of all must be, whoever wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He's the serving king. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And I think one of the most powerful pictures in the New Testament, and I'm almost done with this message, okay, is in the Gospel of John. It's the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. He's literally going to die in just a number of hours. They eat their last meal, to de- they eat their last meal together, and then Jesus does the most radical thing. He wraps a towel around his waist, he gets a bowl of water, and he gets down on his knees. He takes the position of a slave, not a servant, because it was actually illegal in first century Jewish culture to require a Jew to wash another Jew's feet. The only people who did what Jesus did were slaves. So he gets down, he takes the role of a slave, and he washes the dirty, nasty feet of his disciples to set us an example that we are to do likewise. Here's what's so crazy. You know who's washing their feet? The creator of the universe, God Almighty. The one who made the sun and the moon and the stars is down on his feet, watch, down on his hands and knees, washing their disgusting feet. In a culture where everybody wore Birkenstocks, amen? <laughs> With all their toe fungus and everything else, that's Christianity. That is what it means to be a Christian, is we are servants and we serve like Jesus served. Sharing, looking for opportunities to share the gospel with other people, you know, again, old, old school Christians, we call this evangelism. And it's actually kind of a lost art because nobody talks to each other anymore. Especially the younger people. I have to like, I can't just call a young person at my church. It would like, they'd have a heart attack. I got to go, I'm going to call you <laughs> in a few moments. So prepare yourself for my incoming phone call. And then even then it's like, you called me? I'm like, yeah, I grew up in an area where we called people. It was totally a crazy, weird thing. And we would talk to people on the phone. So we're so isolated from one another that we've lost the art of just talking to other people. We don't even know how to talk to anybody anymore. But I want to demystify and de-scarify, it's not a word, evangelism. All that evangelism is, is just telling somebody about Jesus. That's all that it is. 
And what I found is I, I, don't, I don't talk to them like they're, like they're I just talk to, I, I, I talk to them like they're, like they're already Christians. I'll go, isn't Jesus good? Well, yeah, he, I guess he's good. <laughs> and I, I just share Jesus with them. That's all it is. It's just telling people about Jesus, telling people your story. And we're, we're in an interesting cultural moment where, you know what, people are like Jesus. They're attracted to Jesus. I think it's the Christians who have lost their courage. I think we have a, I think we have a culture that's hungry for Jesus. But we got to just tell them about Jesus. We don't have to be pushy. We don't have to be aggressive. We don't have to make the hard sell. Just open your mouth and tell them about Jesus. That's all that it is. And the last one, you didn't think we'd get here. We did. Worshiping. Worshiping God through singing, prayer, and reflection. And I just want to make a couple quick comments on this. Yeah, worship team, if you guys want to come on up, that'd be awesome. Is Look, we were made to worship. And God inhabits the praises of his people. And you know what happens when we worship? You get emotional healing. You get mental healing. I'll tell you what, you can't be depressed and worship Jesus at the same time. Amen? And part of putting on the helmet of salvation is you fill your mind with praise. You know, I, I have kind of a predisposition towards being melancholy. That's really, I'm kind of a loner. I, I could be a monk and just live in a castle somewhere the rest of my life. And in that predisposition towards melancholiness, what I found is how important worship is. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do, is on your smartphone, and we're, we're living through kind of a worship music renaissance right now. There is so much good worship music. Fill your smartphone up with worship music. Listen to it while you're doing chores around the house. Listen to it on your commute to work. Because you can't worship Jesus and have road rage at the same time, Amen. <laughs> I'll catch myself. I'll, just, I'll be like furious with somebody. I'm just like, God bless your name. You know? <laughs> Fill your house with worship. Begin to worship. And men, I want to encourage you to enter into worship. Men, I want to encourage you to lift your hands and sing to Jesus and to experience the peace and the healing and the blessing that comes as we worship God. And you know what we're going to be doing forever? Worshiping the Lamb with the straight-up best worship team you've ever heard in the entire universe, even though these guys are really good, amen? It says that before God's throne are the 24 elders and the seraphim and the millions of, million times millions of angels and the hundreds of millions of believers worshiping the Lamb forever. Because we're going to be so blown away by what Jesus Christ did for us and that because of what he did for us, we get to be in heaven forever. And we're going to know that we didn't belong there and we're not supposed to be there. But we got in solely because of the blood of Jesus. And I, I really, and I think, man, this is a word for you this morning. I want to encourage you to discover the beauty and the wonder of worship. So as we do these seven things, as we practice these seven essential spiritual disciplines, as we pray and worship and commune and read and give and serve and share, we become stronger, we experience the blessing of God, our Christian life comes alive, we become spiritually healthier, and we experience all the blessings that come from that. Amen? Let's do this. All stand to our feet. Let's stand up. I went a little longer than Nathan does. Thank you for being patient and giving me your attention this morning. Normally, I only preach about 30 minutes as well, but there's just a lot in this that I wanted to cover and communicate and felt strongly about. 
And here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to close with one last worship song. And as we sing this last worship song, I want us to recommit ourselves to Jesus this morning. Amen? I want us to recommit ourselves to say, you know what, Jesus? I want to be that disciple that you want me to be. I'm imperfect. I'm flawed. I have my weaknesses. I don't even need to tell you. You know all about me. But you know what, Lord? You can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And I give myself to you this morning. Jesus, just help me. Give me victory. Give me strength. I commit myself to you. And I want to tell you something as well. You know what? I pray almost every single day. I mean, I miss a day or two, if I was honest. I pray for revival in Pensacola Beach. And I'm praying for revival in Pensacola. I pray for revival from Panama City to New Orleans. And I think in the next 10, 15 years, there's going to be a move of God in this whole region. That's not hype. I absolutely believe that in all, with all my heart. But I think that there's a synergy where, like, if we want revival, like, we, we, we got to partner with God in that. And we got to say, God, here we are. Use us. We want you to move, and I make myself available. And we are living in crazy times. Part of the problem in New York City, like the flooding we had recently, is New York was never designed for hurricanes. Our summers now are like the rainy season in Costa Rica, and we can't handle it as a city. The world is in such a strange place. I, I think we're living in the end times. And we need a revival. We need a powerful move of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going down without a fight, amen? And I love this country, and I love the United States, and I'm not prepared to just let America go down the tubes. I'm not, and not on my watch. But we need to partner with God. We need to commit ourselves to him and say, Lord, here we are. Look, we are imperfect. We're flawed. But we give ourselves to you. We commit ourselves to you. And if your heart's still beating, God's not done with you. So let's commit ourselves to Jesus this morning. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And once you pray a prayer in your heart, just say, Jesus, I recommit myself to you this morning, to your plans, to your purposes. And tell him, just say, Lord, however much time I have left on this planet, I give it all to you. I don't want to waste one more day, one more hour, one more minute. You have me here for a reason. And I give the remaining years of my life to you, Jesus. You know, the thing that Moses did that, that he's famous for, he didn't even start doing until he was 80 years old. Same with Joshua. Abraham was in his 90s when he had his baby. The most important years of your life may still be ahead of you. So let's not waste them. God, I thank you for everybody here this morning. I, I went long, and they were patient and kind. I pray you would fill everybody with your Holy Spirit. I pray for fresh strength, fresh vigor, fresh vision. Bless Nathan and Caitlin. Bless this church. Bring revival to Pensacola Beach and Pensacola and all along the Gulf Coast. Bring revival to this country. And here this morning, Lord, I'm the most flawed. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst person in this room. But all of us together, Jesus, we just, we recommit ourselves to you and to your purposes. Restore us, strengthen us, enable us, help us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.